I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of the We the Voters podcast. It's a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. I'm your host, Emily Kate Topcheski. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, an editor, a producer, a writer, a filmmaker, a photographer, a web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the many ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. The podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk to the other side, no matter what side you're on. So if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about policing in the United States. In recent years, law enforcement has been coming under increasing scrutiny. Big questions are being asked. How effective is policing in the U.S. today? What is the role of law enforcement in our past and in our present? And how should policing be used in our future? In the next hour, I'll walk you through each of these questions, taking myths apart and finding the facts. Then, I'll do the same thing while addressing the future of policing from two opposing opinions, defund the police and community policing. So let's get to it. Police departments have been looked at with curiosity, they've been examined, and they've been fictionalized for decades. The first show that ever aired on TV was called Stand By for Crime. It aired in 1949 as a TV adaptation of a popular radio drama. This show followed a detective looking for clues about a murder and invited viewers to phone in their own guesses to who the killer was. Stand By for Crime was popular with audiences. It started an entirely new genre of television, police procedurals, or crime shows. In the 2019-2020 TV season, 19 crime shows aired on the broadcast networks, about 20% of the scripted shows that year. Law & Order SVU is the second longest-running primetime TV series in the U.S. Police departments have been shown on TV in dramas like Blue Bloods, comedies like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and true crime shows like The Vow. But how does this trend on TV impact people's understanding of law enforcement today, in real life? Studies have shown that crime shows can distort viewers' understanding of both crime and the criminal justice system. Researchers from Purdue University found that crime show viewers consistently overestimated how much crime often happens in the real world. They also overestimated the number of officers and attorneys in the workforce. The study found that viewers estimated police departments made up about 18% of the workforce, but in reality, that number is less than 1%. So what does this all mean for how people relate to law enforcement today? Ultimately, it indicates that there is confusion about the role policing holds in our society. So, what is law enforcement exactly? Who makes up a police force? And what is their role in society today? Let's take these questions one by one. What is law enforcement? Law enforcement refers to the individuals and agencies responsible for enforcing laws and managing public safety. This includes the prevention, detection, and investigation of crime. It also includes detaining criminal suspects. Law enforcement in the U.S. includes a wide range of bureaus, from small-town police departments to large federal agencies. At the federal level, there are 65 agencies and 27 offices of Inspector General. The largest employers include Customs and Border Protection, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the FBI, and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. 
Each of these agencies employ more than 15,000 full-time officers. Federal agents are responsible for police response and patrols, investigation and enforcement, inspections, security and protection, court operations, and corrections. Now, at the state and local level, there are more than 17,000 departments across the U.S. These agencies can range from employing one officer to more than 30,000. It includes local police, state police, highway patrol, special jurisdiction police, and deputy sheriffs. Each of these departments plays specific roles in enforcing law and maintaining order. Local police includes municipal, county, tribal, and regional departments. They are responsible for upholding local laws, patrolling their community, and investigating local crimes. State police are responsible for highway patrol and statewide investigations. These officers help with investigations and emergencies that extend beyond both resources and jurisdictional boundaries of a local agency. Now, special jurisdiction police uphold laws, patrol, and investigate crimes, but only in defined entities or areas within another department's control. This includes parks, schools, subways, airports, hospitals, housing authorities, and government buildings. These departments are generally full service, offering the same services as local police, but just within a smaller radius. And finally, deputy sheriffs enforce state law at a local county level. These deputies run the local jail, serve warrants and court summons, and respond to calls in areas outside of the local police department's jurisdiction. Which brings us to question two. Who makes up a police force? A police force is made up of officers at eight ranks. Technicians, officers and detectives, corporals, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, deputy police chief, and the police chief. Each rank plays a role in making a department run efficiently and maintain order in their jurisdiction. Technicians support the department with many of the assisting duties, like enforcing parking, directing traffic, and keeping records up to date. Officers and detectives respond to calls. They conduct patrols, investigate crimes, obtain warrants, make arrests, and testify in court. Corporals act like general supervisors in a department. Sergeants, on the other hand, interpret and apply ordinances. They supervise personnel and help with the development of policies. They essentially act like a liaison between upper management and the officers. Lieutenants take broad direction from upper management and turn it into a plan of action for sergeants and officers. They identify training needs, assign staff, and act as ambassadors for the department within the community. Captains are the next step up. They train personnel, monitor programs and budgets, and enforce department policies. Deputy police chiefs are found in some but not all law enforcement agencies. They are responsible for designing department programs and ensuring all officers act in compliance with current laws and regulations. In cases that a department is too small for a deputy police chief, the police chief will take on these responsibilities. The police chief is also the top authority in the department. They oversee all of the department operations. They develop programs and procedures that increase effectiveness and safety, and they assign officers to special investigations. Most of the police chiefs in the U.S. are appointed by elected officials. They implement law enforcement programs and review criminal cases to find trends and patterns. They're responsible for the department's budget, and they address the public in times of crisis. About 796,000 officers work among these ranks in local, state, and federal agencies across the United States. The average age of a police officer is about 40 years old. According to 2016 data, about 12% of law enforcement officers are women. The remaining 88% are men. According to the same report, about 71% of officers are white. 13% are Hispanic. 11% are black. The remaining 3.6% 
includes officers who are Asian, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, American Indian, Alaska Native, or two or more races. These numbers indicate that police departments are slowly diversifying. The number of female officers in local police departments rose 36% between 1997 and 2016. The number of Hispanic officers rose 61% in the same time period. Meanwhile, the number of white officers dropped about 6%. Experts suggest that a diverse police force has numerous benefits for the communities it serves. Diversity in leadership can improve problem-solving and innovation. It can also improve trust in the eyes of the public. Studies have found that officer diversity can create confidence in the agency's understanding of local issues, and it can also create more positive interactions between officers and the community, both in perception and in reality. A diverse police force, particularly one that mirrors the community it serves, can improve relationships with people in the community. It can increase cooperation when conducting interviews and solving crimes. It can also help officers understand motives and establish commonality. Which leads us to the third question. What is the role of policing in society today? Before we can understand why policing looks the way it does and how it contributes to U.S. society today, we need to discuss the history of policing. Policing has deep roots through many names in world history, but for brevity's sake, we'll be taking a look specifically at its role in the United States. And law enforcement goes all the way back to the 1600s before the U.S. was, well, even the U.S., During the 17th century, colonial police forces were not part of a government agency. Instead, they were led by and made up of volunteers and other citizens. These forces were known as the Night Watch or Watch Groups. Watch Groups were privately funded. Officers served part-time with no pay. The first group was formed in Boston in 1631, followed by New York City in 1658 and Philadelphia in 1700. It's important to note that these colonies had police forces decades before the U.S. declared independence. Watch groups had many responsibilities, including protecting property and public safety. They were also responsible for many social services, like lighting street lamps, running soup kitchens, and finding lost children or animals. As the population grew across many U.S. cities, it quickly became apparent that watch groups were too disorganized to continue. They were replaced with more formal police organizations, which were deemed official departments in the 19th century. In the South, policing played a different role due to the proliferation of slavery. The first form of policing below the Mason-Dixon was known as slave patrol. Slave patrol began in the colonies of Carolina in 1704. These groups were responsible for chasing down escaped slaves, preventing riots, and keeping plantation owners in check. Slave patrols lasted from the early 1700s until the Civil War, when they were unofficially replaced with the birth of the KKK. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Back in 1789, Congress created the first federal law enforcement agency, the U.S. Marshals. Thirteen marshals were appointed by President George Washington. The beginning of the 1800s saw rapid growth in official police departments across the country. In 1835, Texas created an agency that would later be known as the Texas Rangers. This is the oldest state law enforcement agency in the country. An influx of immigrants began settling in cities like Boston and New York between 1820 and 1860. These new immigrants clashed with original settlers, who said that these new people were ruining U.S. society. Crime began to rise, and it quickly became clear that the cities were not prepared to keep order. As a response, Boston created the first local, publicly funded police department in 1838. New York City followed suit in 1845, followed by Chicago in 1854, and Los Angeles in 1869. By the 1880s, most major cities in the U.S. had their own police force. 
The government created specific regulations for publicly funded police forces. Police had clear parameters defined by written law. Local governments were required to provide police services to their communities. In the 1850s, cities started including detective units to investigate crime. The groundwork of the law enforcement system we see today was laid during this time. Multiple agencies existed at the same time, serving different groups with different responsibilities. While there was some overlap, much of the enforcement was unique to each agency on local, state, and federal levels. But this does not mean that policing in the 19th century was free of the challenges departments face today. Reports of corruption among some police forces came to light as departments fell under pressure from politicians in exchange for funding and favors. In 1870, Constable Wyatt Outlaw was the first black officer to ever be killed in the line of duty. He was lynched in front of the county courthouse after being forcibly removed from his home by the KKK. In 1891, Marie Owens is appointed to the Detective Bureau of the Chicago Police Department. She became the first woman sworn in as a law enforcement officer. And in 1893, the first national police group was formed. For the first time, police leaders met regularly to share ideas and develop programs to improve law enforcement. This era, from the development of industrial cities through the early 1920s, was known as the political era of policing. Police represented local politicians and neighborhoods that they served. With no civil service system in place, police were hired, fired, and managed at the discretion of these politicians. And thus, there was pressure to only focus on crime or rules that benefited the powers that be. Police during this time had limited supervision and a large amount of discretion. Some officers allowed thieves to go about their business for a cut into the profits. Others shook down small businesses offering protection. The political era brought about levels of corruption that begged for a new era of reform. And reform largely came about after the turn of the 20th century. The early 1900s brought about new technology that helped police officers solve crimes. The first fingerprints were identified in 1902. Crime labs were introduced and gained popularity during the 1920s. The 911 emergency system was introduced in the 1960s, which made a big impact on unit response times. But the turn of the 20th century also brought about the beginning of a new police system. August Vollmer is considered to be the father of modern policing. He was the police chief in Berkeley, California, and created the campus's criminology department. August was a highly progressive police chief, and he held great influence throughout California, which later meant that his ideas gained traction across the U.S. and around the world. He highlighted the importance of sociology, social work, psychology, and management in policing. Through his leadership, August advanced policing through technology, training, and education. August also began using the method of hotspot policing. As L.A. police chief in 1922, he used an early form of the computer to find locations with high crime and then placed officers there to deter future crime. But in the 1920s, policing in the U.S. saw another change, the popular rise of state and federal police agencies. During Prohibition, officers were responsible for stopping the sale and distribution of alcohol. But at the same time, organized crime began to rise. The frequencies and the frequency of protests, riots, and petty crime were also growing. Local police departments could not seem to keep up. So in response, the federal government created the T-Men. The group of about 4,000 men were responsible for enforcing prohibition laws. At the same time, state governments began forming their own agencies to help stop crime in the cities. When J. Edgar Hoover took control of the FBI in 1924, he brought the agency from a small federal operation to a large-scale crime-fighting bureaucracy. He created a strong organization that demanded accountability and established educational requirements, including a formal training course in modern policing methods. 
Hoover also concentrated the FBI's resources on crimes that were in the public eye and relatively easy to solve, like bank robberies and kidnappings. Through this publicity, he ensured that the public saw policing as the country's incorruptible crime fighter. With these changes, August Vollmer's groundwork of modern policing fell out of popularity. They were replaced with narrow reforms to fight serious street crimes and severed close ties between officers and the neighborhoods they served. The basic policing strategy in the early to mid-20th century shifted to the three R's, random patrols, rapid response, and reactive criminal investigation. This era between the 1920s and the 1970s became known as the professional era of policing. Officers narrowed their function to crime control and criminal apprehension. They were only seen during times of conflict rather than prevention. Police were protectors of the status quo. The 1960s and 70s saw massive riots and demonstrations regarding both civil rights and anti-war sentiments. Black citizens and their allies began to challenge how police enforced laws in their communities. To protest the treatment of black citizens and racial profiling practices, civil rights activists used riots, boycotts, and protests across the U.S., but primarily in the South. In response, some police departments in the South used harsh tactics to keep order, including tear gas, high-pressure water hoses, and attack dogs. Some police arrests and beatings of civil rights and anti-war activists were broadcast live on national television. They were widely condemned by the public. In 1967, President Johnson created a national commission to study the causes of urban riots. The commission found that the ultimate cause was racism, stating that the U.S. was, quote, moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, unquote. It also found that police tactics, such as the unwarranted use of deadly force, often made the riots and protests more violent, not less. In this period, fear of crime escalated more rapidly than crime itself. Many citizens took measures to defend themselves, their families, and their homes. Others fled the cities completely, seeking safety in the suburbs or rural areas. In 1969, another marginalized community fought back against unfair profiling. On June 28, 1969, police officers raided the Stonewall Inn in New York City. Stonewall Inn was a popular gay nightclub in the city. Police began arresting people in the club, but patrons and neighborhood residents fought back. This started a riot against the police that lasted six days and sparked the LGBT rights movement. In response to the growing tension between the public and the police, the early 1970s saw numerous studies in police reforms. For example, one study found that patrolling police cars did not reduce crime or ease the community's fears. Instead, it increased the community's distrust with the police. From the late 1970s forward, the U.S. brought about a return to August Vollmer's ideals with the implementation of community policing. This implementation differs based on various departments, but the underlying mantra is the same. To reduce fear and crime, communities must feel like the department is receptive to their feedback. But more on community policing in a moment. An article entitled Broken Windows, The Police and Neighborhood Safety was published in 1982. In this article, researchers suggested that crime is directly related to the conditions of a neighborhood. For example, if a building is in disrepair, it encourages criminals to damage it further. This eventually leads to an increase of crime and illegal behavior and ultimately people fleeing the neighborhood. To counteract this evolution, the researchers suggest that police departments should become more visible in troubled neighborhoods. The theory states that police visibility deters crime and grows public trust. This method of policing gained popularity through the coming decades. In the 1990s, crime rates across the country began to decline. There are many theories as to why. Some say that it's because more police officers were hired. Studies suggest that up to 10% of the crime decrease is because there were more officers on the streets. 
Another theory says that improved technology helped officers see and address crime trends more effectively. Police departments came under scrutiny in 1999 after the response to Columbine. On April 20, 1999, two students killed 13 people at Columbine High School. The police response was largely criticized because of the amount of time officers took setting up a perimeter before moving into the school. This scrutiny caused police departments to reevaluate and change their strategy, making officers more effective in their response to mass shootings. Following the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, policing shifted once again. The Department of Homeland Security was created to unify national security efforts. This unit began working directly with both state and federal agencies. But the focus on counterterrorism brought about another side effect, an increase in racial and ethnic profiling. Policies like stop and frisk were intended to reduce crime, but evidence shows that these tactics largely target people of color. In 2014, Michael Brown was fatally shot by a police officer in St. Louis. The same year, Eric Garner died in an officer chokehold in New York City. These deaths caused massive protests and a call for police accountability. In response to the public outcry, nearly half of police forces implemented policies that required body cameras on police officers two years later. South Carolina and Nevada require all of their officers to wear the equipment. And by 2016, about 80% of departments with 500 or more full-time officers had body cameras. 31% of small departments with part-time officers reported the same. Police departments nationwide sought body cameras as a solution to reduce racial profiling. They also sought to hold police officers accountable for their actions. Body-worn cameras were intended to increase transparency and help solve crimes more quickly. The main deterrent for departments adopting body cameras appears to be cost, including video storage and disposal, hardware costs, and ongoing maintenance. Federal laws to require body cameras nationwide have largely died in congressional committees. Which brings us to today. In May 2020, George Floyd died after an officer placed his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes in Minneapolis. Activists and citizens came out by the hundreds and thousands across the country to demand changes with policing in the U.S. Many of these protests were peaceful. Some turned into riots, leading to arson, looting, and violence. Many police officers attempted to maintain order. Some officers responded with tear gas, running police cruisers through crowds, and with riot guns. Still others stood in solidarity with the protesters. A Gallup poll found that public confidence in the police fell to 48% in 2020. This marks the first time in 27 years of data where public confidence fell below the majority level. Confidence in the police in recent history peaked in 2004 at 64%. In 2019, it sat at 53%. Much like the discussion about the media last week, confidence in the police appears to be disjointed between political parties. Confidence rose 7 points to 82% among Republicans. But on the other hand, confidence in the police dropped 6 points among Democrats to 28%. Studies also show a distinct gap in confidence in the police between people of different racial backgrounds. Differences in Americans' confidence in the police have largely been consistent since Gallup began monitoring in 1993. From 1993 to 2013, about 25 points separated black and white confidence in the police. Over the next six years, black Americans' confidence dropped to 30%. White Americans' confidence remained steady at about 60%. This dropped markedly in 2020. 56% of white adults reported that they had either a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the police. On the other hand, only 19% of black adults agreed with those statements. Dr. Philip Goff is the co-founder at the Center of Policing Equity and a professor at Yale University. He says that the racial gap could be attributed to the type of law enforcement people tend to receive in the U.S. He says that the lack of confidence in policing creates a public safety problem. 
Compliance with the law, quote, begins with trust in it and not fear of it, unquote. Which leads us to the next question. What is the role of policing today? Police officers are trained and sworn to uphold law and order. This includes investigating crimes, handling traffic accidents and violations, apprehending suspects, intervening in domestic situations, and executing search warrants. But it also includes proactive duties like foot patrols, neighborhood watches, school presentations, and outreach at community meetings. Police officers investigate or enforce the law in about 8.25 million criminal offenses each year. They conduct more than 10 million arrests a year to ensure public safety and to hold people accountable when they violate the law. Police officers have two roles. They are both part of the community they serve and part of the government protecting that community. Officers are tasked with upholding laws and enforcing public safety so that communities and people can grow and succeed. Today, the American public largely says that they see the police as enforcers, not protectors. This perception of policing's role in the U.S. impacts the conversations we have about policing's future. And within police departments, questions about how to police effectively are being discussed at the local, state, and federal levels. Overall, a 2017 study shows that 74% of officers say they are satisfied or very satisfied with their agency as a place to work. 96% of officers say that they are committed to making their agency successful. And these statistics seem largely consistent across demographic groups and agency levels. In terms of specific policies, about a quarter of officers find that their department's use of force guidelines are too restrictive. On the other hand, 73% of officers say that the guidelines are just about right. About a third of officers say that their department's guidelines are very useful when they are confronted with situations on the job. And when it comes to preventing unnecessary force, 84% say that officers should be required to intervene. In 2017, 68% of officers felt that most people respected the police. About 7 in 10 officers believed that at least some or most of the residents in their jurisdiction shared their values. And more than 90% of officers said that it was important for an officer to know their community where they work so that they can be effective at their job. Black officers see the relations between the police and black communities differently than other officers. About 9 in 10 officers of all demographics find that the police and white communities have good relations. But when considering black communities, about 60% of white and Hispanic officers say that police and black community relations are excellent or good. On the other hand, only 32%, about one-third of black officers, agree with that statement. Views also diverge when looking at Hispanic communities. About three-quarters of white officers and about 71% of Hispanic officers say that there are excellent or good relations in Hispanic communities. In contrast, only 46% of black officers agree with that statement. About 9 in 10 white and Hispanic officers say that relationships between police and Asian communities are excellent or good. Three-quarters of black officers agree. The role of the police in their relationship to the community they serve is under greater scrutiny in recent months. As tensions rose across the country in 2020, many people are asking for change. Two opposing opinions have appeared. One, that the government should defund the police. And two, that the government should invest more money and training into community policing. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at both of these opinions. And after the break, we'll begin with the opinion that the government should, quote, defund the police. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. Calls to defund the police echoed in protest chants across the United States in 2020. It spurned thousands of op-eds in magazines and newspapers. 
It dominated the 24-hour news cycle as commentators debated its pros and cons. But what does this phrase truly mean? Defunding the police means redirecting funding away from the police department and towards other local government agencies. Defund the police does not mean abolish policing, although a small percentage of the progressive left is advocating for that instead. Instead, defunding the police is a call to divest resources from police budgets and instead invest them into public safety programs like housing, healthcare, job growth, and education. A July 2020 Gallup poll found that 47% of Americans support defunding the police. 28% of those Americans say that they strongly support it. There are distinct differences in support between demographic groups and partisan lines. 70% of Black Americans support defunding the police, while 49% of Hispanic Americans and 41% of white Americans support the same method. And the partisan divide is even more divergent. 78% of Democrats support defunding the police, but on the other hand, only 5% of Republicans and slightly less than half of independents agree. And when it comes to abolishing the police, only 15% of Americans agree that the government should disband departments completely in favor of other public safety models. For the sake of clarity in this week's episode, we are going to be looking specifically at defunding the police methods rather than abolishing the police methods, particularly because it appears that defunding the police is gaining more support among Americans. The 47% of support found in July 2020 is up from a 31% average found the month before. That's a 16-point gain in just a few weeks. Many supporters to defund the police want to divest funds to address public safety concerns and the escalation of violent force. But why is this movement gaining traction? According to CNBC, about $100 billion are spent on policing each year nationwide. Police budgets made up about 20-45% to of discretionary funds in cities across the country in 2020. Defund the police supporters say that police budgets largely outsize other budgets. For example, police and corrections departments in Chicago received 40.5 of the city's general fund in the 2019 fiscal year. On the other hand, mental health services received just under 1% of the fund. Youth and job programs received 2.4%. Proponents of this opinion say that some of these funds from the police department should be reallocated to other social services. They say it's the first step in rethinking public safety. For instance, instead of the police automatically responding to 911 calls, some calls would be routed to social workers, some would be routed to medical professionals, and some would be routed to other community workers instead. Supporters say that this could prevent the use of unnecessary force or violence from first responders not trained to handle certain situations effectively. Alicia Garza is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Here's what she had to say about defunding the police. When we talk about defunding the police, what we're saying is invest in the resources that our communities need. So much of policing right now is generated and directed towards quality of life issues, homelessness, drug addiction, uh, uh, domestic violence, and, and conflict between people in order to address those issues. But what we do need is increased funding for housing. We need increased funding for education. We need increased funding for the quality of life of communities who are over-policed and over-surveilled. Supporters to defund the police appear to have three main reasons why divesting resources is needed, and three main objectives on what it will accomplish. Let's go through these one by one. The reasons to defund the police fall into these three categories. One, that previous police reforms have not worked. Two, that the police are not effectively trained to handle many of the tasks they perform. And three, that having less police does not necessarily lead to more crime. 
So let's start at the beginning. Police reforms have been implemented over the years to address police brutality, implicit bias, and other issues within police departments. These reforms are intended to improve technical capabilities and improve accountability for officers and departments at all levels. But do they work? Some activists say no. Philip McHarris is a Yale PhD candidate. Sinejue McHarris is the co-founder of Blackbird, a social justice organization. Together, they wrote a New York Times op-ed criticizing the Minneapolis Police Department in May 2020. They say, quote, The department offers procedural justice as well as trainings for implicit bias, mindfulness, and de-escalation. It embraces community policing and officer diversity, bans warrior-style policing, uses body cameras, implemented an early intervention system to identify problematic officers, receives training around mental health crisis intervention, and practices reconciliation efforts in communities of color, unquote. And despite all of these efforts, they point to the death of George Floyd last year. The Minneapolis Star Tribune found that a total of 202 people died after a physical confrontation with police in Minnesota between January 2000 and January 2021. More than half of the people who died were white. 54 people, or 27%, were black. The remainder of those who died were Asian, Hispanic, or American Indian. 90% of these deaths were declared a homicide. 3% were accidental deaths. The remainder were suicide, natural causes, or unknown. Supporters of Defund the Police look at these numbers as proof that police reforms have not worked. Others point to cases in New York, like the death of Eric Garner. In July 2014, Eric Garner died from a chokehold performed by a police officer. New York Police Department banned the hold more than 20 years earlier in 1993. Critics of this side say that investing more in the police, particularly in training and accountability, can lead to safer communities and fewer, quote, bad apples. But supporters of Defund the Police say that while former trainings have made small changes, they largely don't appear to work. Consider the evidence from anti-bias training. CBS News conducted a survey of 155 major police departments in 2019. They found that 69% of departments do have implicit racial bias training, and 57% say it was added in the last five years. It is a mandatory training for officers in 9 out of 10 departments but only about a third of agencies say they can measure the success or failure from these programs. Studies have stepped in to measure the short and long-term effects of these trainings. Two studies from Harvard University found that anti-bias techniques meant to fit stereotypes only worked in the short term. A 2016 study found that anti-bias training reduced implicit bias for a few hours to a few days, but did not bring long-term changes in behavior. Another study found that this training had little to no effect on racial bias in traffic stops or marijuana arrests. Another training often implemented in police reforms is conflict management and mediation, but Harvard researchers found that just 39% of agencies require all officers to go through conflict management training. And of those who require it, it's only a small percent of the time spent in training new officers. On average, police officers receive between 10 to 36 weeks of training before they are given their badges. A 2006 Department of Justice report found that academies spent about 110 hours training firearm skills and self-defense, but only 16 hours on conflict management and mediation. Self-defense is an important skill for police officers to have, but proponents of defund the police say it should not compromise non-lethal weapons training or mediation skills. Tasers are less deadly weapons that could serve departments as an alternative to guns. But on average, agencies provide just 8 hours of taser training, only 25% of the required training time put forth by manufacturers. And overall, the data appears to show that conflict management and mediation training have little to no impact on the number of people who die in officer-involved shootings every year. In 2017, 984 citizens died in an officer-involved shooting. 
In 2020, 1,004 people died. At the time of recording this, 58 people have died in an officer-involved shooting this year. Proponents of defund the police pointed these two examples as reasons why police reforms have largely failed in recent years. Others suggest that police reforms are not possible because the system of policing isn't broken. They say it's working as it should be. Some activists say that law enforcement is inherently intertwined with the mistreatment of black citizens and other people of color. Policing in the South began as slave patrol, as we discussed in the history section. But supporters to defund the police say that when slavery was abolished, the police transitioned to enforcing Jim Crow laws harshly, even in minor infractions. This outsized policing in communities of color continued through the 20th century, including the war on drugs, which dominated the 80s and 90s. Today, research shows that some police officers disproportionately use force against black people they arrest or come in contact with. A 2015 study found that the probability of being black, unarmed, and shot by the police is about three and a half times more likely than the probability of being white, unarmed, and shot by the police. Other studies conflict with this finding. For instance, a Harvard study examined more than 1,000 shootings in 10 major police departments and found no racial differences in officer-involved shootings. The study did find that black civilians are more likely to experience other types of force, like being handcuffed without arrest, pepper sprayed, or pushed to the ground by an officer. Data also shows that black people are more likely to be stopped by the police. In Oakland, California, black residents make up 28% of the population, but they also account for 60% of police stops. The same study found that black men were four times more likely than white men to be searched during a traffic stop, even though officers were no more likely to recover contraband. This unequal enforcement is not solely found in Oakland either. Philandro Castile was fatally shot in July 2016 in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Data released by the local police department shows that while 7% of residents in the area are black, black people account for 47% of the arrests. A 2019 study found that black men are two and a half more times more likely to be killed by the police than white men. Black women are 1.4 times more likely to be killed by the police than white women. These disparities do not indicate that black people or people of color are more likely to commit crimes than white people. Instead, proponents to defund the police say it indicates, find, it indicates findings that police are more likely to enforce the law against people of color than white residents. Take the example of illicit drug use. Studies have found that about 14 million white people report using illicit drugs, while only 2.6 million black people admit the same usage. But despite representing 12% of drug users, black people are 10 times more likely to be sent to prison than white drug users. 38% of people arrested for using drugs are black. They are arrested three times more often than white people for drug possession, despite being a lower percentage of drug users. And studies have found that they are often punished more harshly than white users for their lawbreaking. On average, the sentencing project found that black people served nearly as much time for drug offenses, 58.7 months on average, as white people serve for committing violent crimes, about 61.7 months on average. Proponents to defund the police point to examples like this one as evidence to bias in law enforcement. They suggest that police statistics are informed by the small sample of people that police interact with, and that there's inherent bias in who the police choose to interact with. And since studies show that implicit bias training does not appear to work long-term, they say, it's time to defund the police and shift some funds into other organizations to, quote, start over. Which leads us to our second reason. Two, police are not effectively trained to handle many of the tasks they perform. Consider the training required to be a police officer. As we discussed, training takes between 10 to 36 weeks, depending on the size of the department and its location in the country. 
On average, this is about 672 hours of training, according to data collected by the Institute of Criminal Justice Training Reform. 37 states allow officers to start working for the force before attending basic training. Minnesota, Alaska, and Washington, D.C. require the most training, more than 1,000 hours of basic training. Tennessee, South Carolina, and Nevada require the least, 480 hours. Some departments require associates, degrees, exams, and interviews to become part of the force. Some departments go beyond state requirements for training. But basic average requirements are less than what it takes a person to train as a barber or a plumber. To become a licensed barber, it takes an average of 1,300 training hours. Some states also require apprenticeships and several exams. To become a licensed plumber, people must attend a trade school and then spend up to five years in an apprenticeship before they receive their license. On average, police officers undergo less than half the amount of training that barbers undergo, and significantly less training than plumbers and other trades. Some activists argue that this undercuts the police officer's ability to be effective in the field. And due to the great responsibility officers hold in the community, they would benefit from increased and ongoing training other careers receive. In 672 average hours of training, 16% of the time is spent on firearms and self-defense. 2% of the time is spent on conflict management and mediation. But nearly all the states, 45 out of 50, require no field training as part of the basic training officers receive. Proponents point to averages in police training as reasoning why police may not be the right person to respond to all calls. Police officers currently respond to a wide range of calls. This includes calls about mental illness, homelessness, domestic disputes, and noise complaints. It also includes calls about crimes like shoplifting, speeding, and homicide. And some officers say that is too much. David Brown is the now former Dallas police chief. In 2016, he had this to say in a press conference. I believe that I'm able to stand here and discuss this with you is uh, a testament to God's grace and his sweet, tender mercies, just to be quite honest with you. Uh, because uh, what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish here is above challenging. It, it is, we're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are, we're just asking us to do too much. Every societal failure, we put it off on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health, funding. Let the cop handle it. Not enough drug addiction funding. Let's give it to the cops. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. It, you know, schools fail. Give it to the cops. 70% um, of the African American community is being raised by single women. Let's give it to the cops to solve that as well. That's too much to ask. Policing was never meant to solve all those problems. And I just ask for other parts of our democracy, along with the free press, to help us. To help us uh, and not put that burden all on law enforcement to resolve. Supporters of the Defund the Police movement say that instead of relying solely on the police, people should be sent out based on who can best deal with the call. For instance, a social worker responding to a call when a person is suffering from a mental health crisis an EMT arriving at a domestic dispute, a housing facilitator to address homelessness. Critics say that these groups would not be prepared to handle the risks and potential violence associated with responding to some of these calls. Defund the police supporters say that by shifting responsibility to people specialized in these fields, it could mean less violence and more appropriate responses. Greg Case is a city council member in Austin, Texas. He says, quote, We should be treating homelessness not with policing, but with housing. 
we should be treating addiction not with policing, but with treatment. We have dedicated so many of our public dollars simply to policing, and that hasn't made us actually more safe, unquote. Further defining the role of police officers strengthens community as a whole. When other organizations can focus on mental health, social work, loose animals, counseling, and other services, police officers can return their focus to their core role, policing and safety. Which leads us to point three. Having less police does not necessarily mean more crime. By divesting money from police departments and into other community organizations, activists say that you could potentially prevent crime and reduce the need for police intervention. Patrick Sharkey is a professor at Princeton University. In a Washington Post op-ed last summer, he wrote, quote, When neighborhood organizations engage young people with well-run after-school activities and summer jobs programs, those young people are dramatically less likely to become involved in violent activities. When street outreach workers intervene, they can be extremely effective in interrupting conflicts before they escalate. When local organizations reclaim abandoned lots and turn them into green spaces, violence falls. When community nonprofits proliferate across the city, the city becomes safer, unquote. He continues to say, quote, If we ask community organizations and leaders to take over primary responsibility for creating a safe community, they should be given equivalent resources, unquote. Some evidence appears to back Patrick's statements. A 2017 study found that during weeks when the New York Police Department purposefully pulled back on proactive policing, less crimes were reported. The study also found that there was a 3 to 6% drop in crimes in weeks where the police didn't actively patrol for minor infractions. Overall, the national violent crime rate dropped 37% between 1997 and 2016. At the same time, the number of police officers per 100,000 residents dropped from 242 to 217. These numbers suggest that communities are not necessarily less safe if fewer police are present. Alexander Weiss is a police staffing consultant. He says it's more important to look at how officers are being deployed in schedules rather than the number of officers on the streets. He says, quote, it is more important what the officers do versus how many of them there are, unquote. As crime rates and the number of officers on average dropped over the past 25 years, local police spending consistently rose. Police budgets have grown 46% since 1994, while homicide rates have dropped 32%. But some say that this increased spending is not necessary, and that it does not mean less crime. Dr. Howard Henderson is the founding director at the Texas Southern University Center for Justice Research. He says, quote, The perception was that the police have a direct relationship with crime, so the more police, the lower the rate of crime, we thought. But that has not been the case for some time. There are other factors that are at play that affect that relationship beyond simply just the police presence, unquote. Politico found that both Long Beach, California and Mesa, Arizona saw 4.7 homicides per 100,000 residents in 2017. In that year, Long Beach spent about $1,500 per resident on policing. Mesa spent about $800 per resident. Statistics also show that when governments spend similar amounts per citizen, they can still have very different crime outcomes. Jacksonville, Florida and Austin, Texas both spent about $445 per resident on policing in 2017. That same year, Jacksonville saw 12 homicides per 100,000 residents. On the other hand, Austin saw three homicides per 100,000 residents. Some proponents to defund the police say reducing crime is all about how police spend their budgets, not how much they spend. In 2013, Camden, New Jersey disbanded their city police department in favor of a new county-run force. A new team of officers were hired and trained in de-escalation tactics and community policing. 
and as a result, violent crime has dropped. Community relations have largely improved. Scott Thompson served as the police chief in Camden from 2008 to 2019. He sees the redistribution of funds and the new force largely successful. He says, quote, This has been sustainable through the empowerment of the community. As soon as they felt they had a department they could trust and work with, it was their work that reclaimed the city, unquote. Critics say that Camden hasn't reduced the amount of money they spend on policing. In 2019, they set aside nearly $68.5 million in the police department. Patterson, a city with nearly double Camden's population, estimated its annual costs at just under $45 million for their own policing efforts. But supporters of defunding the police point to how the police are spending this budget. After the new department was founded, officers directed focus on community relations. They were directed to meet residents, knock on doors, and walk beats. For years, they have hosted block parties, basketball games, and cookouts throughout the city. Scott says that they were mocked by other departments who called them soft. But he says, quote, If we see that this is something that can be meaningful to even a few people, why wouldn't we do it? Unquote. This focus shift appears to have worked. Now, the department is not perfect. When the transition first happened, complaints were made alleging police violence and excessive force. The department reacted, enforcing a more restrictive use of force policy and requiring officers to intervene if they witness other officers violating guidelines. But overall, there have been positive ripples in community relations throughout Camden. Captain James grew up in Camden and has worked in law enforcement for nearly 30 years. He says, quote, Us meeting with the community in the absence of crisis really changed the game. There are people who still don't like the police, but there is a level of trust. There are people who believe in us and believe in their ability to hold us accountable, unquote. To recap, proponents of defunding the police say that funds should be divested because largely police reforms have not worked. Police are not effectively trained to complete many of the tasks they're faced with, and having less police does not necessarily mean more crime. So what do they say are the benefits of divesting police funds in communities across the U.S.? They say the benefits are, one, to implement enforceable legal constraints to excessive force and to reduce police brutality as a whole. Two, directing funds to other public sectors that serve the community and help them thrive. And three, reducing mass incarceration and encouraging wide-scale decriminalization. Now let's take a look at these objectives one at a time. First, supporters of defunding the police say it will reduce excessive force as a whole. It is necessary to consider that there is no single universal definition for the use of force or excessive force. No two situations, nor no two officers, are the same. Patrick Sharkey is a sociologist at Princeton University. He says that while police are effective at reducing crime, other organizations can be just as effective. In an interview with Vox, he says, quote, the motivation for developing a new model for how to deal with violence is the observation that while police may have been effective in controlling violence, this has come with significant costs, which aren't accounted for in any of those studies. It's come with the type of aggressive and sometimes violent policing that I think most of the country is no longer willing to tolerate. Policing as a method to confront violence is now seen as unacceptable by a large chunk of the population." Unquote. Patrick points to programs such as Choose to Change and Becoming a Man, which are run out of the crime lab at the University of Chicago. These programs combine mentoring with cognitive behavioral therapy. Data has found that they reduce participants' involvement in violence by about 50%. Data also shows that summer jobs programs lead to more than 40% decreases in violent crime. Patrick found that expanding nonprofits contributes to drops in crime. He says, quote, what we found was that in a given city with 100,000 people, each new organization formed to confront violence and build stronger neighborhoods led to about a 1% drop in violent crime and murder. 
So the expansion of nonprofits focused on building stronger communities and working against violence played a big role in contributing to crime drop, unquote. He says that a community response to violence is just as strong as a police response. And some activists say that a community response means less chance for excessive force from police officers. Some say that tracking complaints about use of force can reduce force overall. A 2019 study found that police officers who are partnered with officers who use excessive force are more likely to use the same level of force themselves in the future. By tracking complaints, researchers say that it could predict excessive force complaints and help departments intervene before violence occurs. Andrew Papachristos is one of the study's co-authors. He says, quote, If you are going to build an early intervention system that only looks for bad apples, that will only go so far. How we pair and assign officers matters. A lot. Officers with a history of abuse have a pretty strong influence on subsequent behavior of other officers, unquote. Supporters say that tracking excessive force means keeping tabs on complaints against officers as well as making the data public, which could encourage transparency and more oversight. It may also help to prohibit officers terminated for misconduct from being rehired, whether it's in the same department or another one. Other supporters say that it is time to encourage federal oversight for police departments. One investigation found that departments that underwent federal investigations adopted new policies, and these departments, on average, saw rates of officer-involved shootings fall between 27 and 35 percent. Federal interventions recommend stricter policies against excessive force and improved officer training. They also recommend an independent review process when officer-involved shootings do happen. The ACLU says that it's time to prohibit the use of lethal force unless it's absolutely necessary. California enacted a new, quote, necessary standard, unquote, which the ACLU hopes to build upon in other states and federally. They say this standard is a common-sense bill modeled after best practices in policing to reduce police misconduct. It clarifies that officers can use deadly force only when there are no other alternatives that would prevent death or serious bodily injury. It is intended to prevent unnecessary shootings, keep officers safe, and ensure public safety. Second, supporters of defunding the police say will divest funds to other public sectors and help them thrive. The ACLU says it is time to embrace alternatives like civilian-led crisis intervention teams made up of highly trained professionals. An example, this could include a team of nurses, doctors, psychiatrists, and social workers who respond to mental health crises. They also suggest it is time to put more counselors and more teachers, rather than more police officers, into schools. NPR reports that school-based policing is one of the fastest-growing areas of law enforcement. After the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, many people, including former President Trump, suggested that there should be school resource officers, or SROs, inside every school. SROs are sworn police officers, not security guards. Mark Hardy is the operations director at the National Association of SROs. He says their role is vital and important. Quote, When I first started, they used to call you kitty cops, but that was a misnomer. Every day when you put on your uniform, you know there are thousands of parents relying on you to work closely with that school administration and that community to keep that campus safe. Unquote. It is estimated that between 14,000 and 20,000 officers are in about 30% of schools in the U.S. This number began growing after the shooting at Columbine High School in 1999. Mark Schindler is the head of the Justice Policy Institute. He says there is no evidence that adding SROs makes schools safer. He says, quote, In fact, the data really shows otherwise, that this is largely a failed approach in devoting a significant amount of resources, but not getting the outcome in school safety that we are all looking for, unquote. In Parkland, Florida, the high school had an SRO on duty during the shooting in 2018. Reports say that that officer remained outside in a defensive position during the shooting. 
The response was criticized, suggesting that SRO presence does not make schools safer. The presence of police in schools is a highly debated issue. Some say it leads to better relationships between students and the law, discourages crime, and increases safety. But supporters of defunding the police say that police presence creates unintended consequences like suspensions, expulsions, and arrests. NPR reports that these consequences particularly affect students of color. The U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights found that black students are more than twice as likely to receive discipline from SROs, despite being a significantly smaller proportion of students. Black students make up about 15% of students overall. The Century Foundation is a progressive nonpartisan think tank. It says recent data shows that more than 1.5 million students attend school with an SRO but no school counselor. This means that when students have issues like disagreements with a friend or physical fights, they are referred to the police rather than a counselor or a mental health professional. Researchers found that students were five times more likely to be arrested for disorderly conduct in schools with SROs than schools without. Some say this contributes to a phenomenon called the school-to-prison pipeline. This pipeline refers to a trend that connects school discipline with juvenile detention. Some say that the trouble at school leads to the student's first contact with the criminal justice system. It suggests that zero-tolerance policies that criminalize minor infractions harm students rather than help them. Supporters of defunding the police say that removing SROs from schools and further investing in school counselors would help students, not penalize them. The ACLU found that schools with police presence reported three and a half times as many arrests as schools without. They say this means students with disabilities, students with mental health issues, and students of color are more frequently sent into the criminal justice system. Data suggests that about 20% of youth develop mental health difficulties. One in 10 will need additional support services from their schools. These mental health concerns can have major impacts on students as they progress through their education, contributing to nearly half of the students eventually dropping out. Supporters of defunding the police suggest that existing mental health services are inadequate. By divesting funds from policing and investing in mental health care in schools, students would be more likely to receive the help they need. This is one example they point to as the potential benefits in divesting funds from police into other community initiatives. Other potential initiatives where funds would be divested include public health, housing, social work, and more. Which brings us to benefit number three. Supporters say that defunding the police will reduce mass incarceration and encourage wide-scale decriminalization. Supporters say that decriminalizing certain minor offenses will reduce mass incarceration, limiting the stress on the criminal justice system, and improving individuals' ability to reconnect with society and rebuild their lives. The U.S. has less than 5% of the world's population, but nearly 25% of the world's prisoners. Some say that this culture of mass incarceration indicates how aggressive policing and incarceration are the norm, rather than the exception, for dealing with societal problems. Supporters of defunding the police say that punitive measures far exceed what is necessary to maintain public safety. Others say that they primarily target both low-income people and people of color. For example, consider the decriminalization of drug use. The Drug Policy Alliance reports that more than 1.6 million people are arrested, prosecuted, incarcerated, supervised, or deported every year on drug offenses. They say that drug offenses are often someone's first encounter with the criminal justice system. People, particularly people of color, are stopped by police because of policies like stop and frisk or because an officer smells marijuana. The Human Rights Watch reports that strict drug law enforcement began when President Nixon declared a war on drugs in the 1970s. And yet, research has found that usage rates have not significantly declined. Instead, it has made it more difficult for people who need treatment for addiction to receive the help they need. 
Other research suggests that criminalization encourages unsafe practices, making drug users more vulnerable to disease and overdoses. Tess Borden is a fellow at the Human Rights Watch in ACLU. She says, quote, every 25 seconds, someone is funneled into the criminal justice system, accused of nothing more than possessing drugs for personal use. These wide-scale arrests have destroyed countless lives while doing nothing to help people who struggle with dependence, unquote. Studies suggest that by helping people with addiction, rather than simply penalizing them, you could help rehabilitate people who desire treatment. Each year, police make more than 1.25 million drug possession arrests, one in every nine arrests nationwide. People are four times more likely to be arrested for having drugs than selling them, and about half of drug arrests are related to having marijuana for personal use. These statistics suggest that heavy-handed law enforcement does not reduce the number of people who use drugs, nor does it limit the distribution of drugs. And some studies show that they are unequally enforced on people of color who use drugs. As we talked about earlier in the episode, about 14 million white people report using illicit drugs, while only 2.6 million black people report the same usage. But despite representing about 12% of drug users, black people are 10 times more likely to be sent to prison than white drug users. Some activists suggest that criminalizing marijuana is misguided in the first place. Studies have shown that the effects of marijuana is no worse than alcohol, and perhaps healthier than tobacco. Research suggests that it can relieve chronic pain, reduce depression and PTSD symptoms, and alleviate epilepsy and cancer symptoms. Supporters of defunding the police say that by decriminalizing personal use and possession of drugs, the government could reduce mass incarceration. They say the government should instead invest resources and programs to decrease the risks associated with drug use. Others say that the government should provide and support voluntary treatment options for people struggling with drug dependence. Supporters suggest that drug decriminalization would would reduce prison population and jail costs. Supporters suggest that drug decriminalization would reduce prison population and jail costs, prioritizing harm reduction rather than punishment. They say this could also include further decriminalization of minor offenses such as sex work. As a recap, proponents to defund the police say it will lead to fewer incidences of police brutality, increased community benefits, and reduced rates of incarceration for nonviolent offenses. By defunding the police, they suggest the government will be able to divest some responsibilities and funds into other initiatives, leaving the police to focus solely on violent crime and public safety. When we come back from the break, we will take a look at the future of policing from the opposite perspective. Inside A, people believe that the government should defund the police, but inside B, people believe that the government should instead invest more money and training into community policing. So let's take that break, and then we'll continue. And we're back. In the wake of mass protests in 2020, some Americans said they wanted to reform police departments instead of defunding them. Proponents of reforming the police have several proposed policies, but for today's episode, we will be discussing one particularly prominent one, community policing. Community policing is a model where officers are empowered to identify and solve problems proactively. Supporters say it can truly transform communities. Officers are tasked to not only enforce the law, but also engage with the communities and neighborhoods they serve. As we discussed in the history section of this episode, the roots of community policing is largely attributed to August Vollmer. August wanted to redefine policing by ensuring officers had an active invested role in the neighborhoods they patrolled. But while his methods were first largely encouraged, they soon fell out of style in favor of a more punitive method. This changed once again following the work of the civil rights activists in the 1960s. 
1974, researchers examined police strategies through the Kansas City Patrol Experiment. This study found that increasing preventative patrol and response time had a small but notable impact on reducing crime levels, reducing public fear, and increasing satisfaction with the police. Another study found that the police could solve more crimes and impact public safety through programs that encouraged greater cooperation between the department and the community it serves. These studies strengthened the appeal for community policing, which took hold in the 1970s and has largely grown into the departments we see today. Some aspects of community policing include the importance of foot patrol, a proactive strategy of addressing minor crimes to subvert more serious ones, and grassroots support through neighborhood relations. If you spend any time on social media, you may have seen the story of the Texas police officer who gave a nine-year-old boy a ride home and bought food for his family. Or the story of a Knoxville officer who brought food and clothes to a homeless man she saw while on patrol. Or the Phoenix officer who helped an elderly citizen get where he needed to go in a local mall. Supporters point to all three of these examples as indicators of community policing at work. These good deeds establish goodwill with the police among the community, which they say can lead to increased public safety and less crime overall. Proponents of community policing cite three main reasons to invest more money and training into this method. They are 1. Community partnerships help develop solutions and increase trust in police. 2. Police organizations are transformed to support neighborhoods and run more smoothly. And 3. Police use proactive policing and systematic examination to identify and solve problems. Much like our discussion about defunding the police in the first half of this episode, let's take some time now to walk through each of these one by one. First, that community policing increases collaborative partnerships in neighborhoods that develop solutions and increase trust. By developing connections in the community, supporters say that police are better informed and more empowered to solve public safety problems. These connections include other government agencies, community groups, nonprofits, private businesses, the media, and members of the community themselves. Partnering with other government agencies means everyone can benefit from shared resources and experience. Under the community policing model, police departments partner with agencies like probation and parole, health and human services, and law enforcement agencies at other levels to best serve the community. But to serve the community, supporters of community policing say that you need to know the community. Police departments partner with community organizations, nonprofits, churches, and private businesses to hear and serve the needs of the people in the neighborhoods they patrol. This can lead to more efficient and effective policing, allow for coordinated use of shared resources, and increase public trust. Police departments use the media to get the word out. They talk about initiatives and current efforts through local newspapers, TV stations, radio shows, and bloggers. Talking to the public means greater transparency, which leads to more trust and a better public image, and it can also lead to more effective crime solving. The U.S. Department of Justice reports that community policing recognizes that the police cannot solve public safety problems alone, nor should they be responsible with it solely on their shoulders. Instead, the public should play a role in solving public safety problems, identifying them, prioritizing them, and addressing them. Individuals who live, work, and are invested in neighborhoods are invaluable in identifying community concerns. When police engage with their community, it streamlines their ability to increase public safety and maintain law and order. Community policing models prioritize a proactive police presence at town hall meetings, neighborhood association meetings, foot patrols, and more. In 2014, the Justice Department launched the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice. This initiative aimed to combat distrust and hostility between law enforcement and communities they serve. It invested in training, evidence-based strategies, development, and research to improve police-community relations. In 2019, the department concluded this initiative, which enacted changes in six cities across the U.S. 
Overall, the initiatives appeared to largely improve impressions and relations between the community and police. For instance, the public's perception that the police made fair and impartial decisions with the cases they dealt with rose 5 points from 26 to 31% over two years. The belief that the police were legitimate authorities in their communities raised 9 points from 42 to 51%, and the perception that police were responsive to community concerns grew 7 points from 28 to 35%. Nearly half of respondents agreed that they could imagine being friends with a police officer after the first two years of this initiative. Three in four said that they would call the police to report a crime, and nearly 70% said that they would give information to help police find suspects. Overall, perceptions of procedural justice, police legitimacy and relatability, and community policing all improved with this model. And perceptions of police bias went down. As a response to these community policing approaches, respondents in these six cities saw crime rates go down and perceptions of safety improve. Half of respondents in 2017 said their neighborhood felt safe, compared to just 39% two years earlier. And about a third of people reported that drugs were a problem in their neighborhood, down 11 points from 48% in 2015. Respondents also reported they felt that less crime happened weekly or daily, the, numbers of pe- the number of people who experienced crime or knew someone who experienced crime fell from the prior year. Concerns of public safety appeared to fall as community police relations improved. Supporters point to this initiative as an example of how investing in community policing can improve neighborhoods and police community relations. Second, proponents of community policing say that it aligns departments from officers on patrol to upper management to transform neighborhoods and run more efficiently. Updating procedures, improving organizational features, and reinventing policies can support community partnerships and problem-solving. This includes agency management, department structure, personnel, and technology. Community policing gives all officers autonomy in making decisions, both in authority and accountability. Supporters say this empowers officers who interact with community members on a daily basis. It can help officers build relationships with people in the neighborhood and encourage more proactive problem-solving. It is central to all of the hiring and personnel practices in police departments. At the heart of community policing is maintaining a positive relationship between the police and the neighborhood they serve. But within many police departments, officers are feeling pressure from too little personnel and not enough funding. 86% of officers say their department does not have enough people to adequately serve the community. Police in agencies with fewer than 1,000 officers are four times more likely than those in larger agencies to say they do have enough officers to police the community. Critics of defunding police departments say reallocating funds would make communities less safe. Here's what former Attorney General William Barr had to say. Today the police chiefs, the rank and file officers understand the need for change and there has been great change. And I think uh, defunding the police, holding the entire police structure responsible for the actions of certain officers is wrong and I think it's dangerous to demonize police. There's no question. It's, it's an issue and has to be dealt with. But in terms of sheer numbers, is it, is it these police officers who are oppressing African-American communities? There are a lot more damage, a lot more killing, uh, a lot more fear engendered on the streets from criminal elements. In Chicago, for example, in one, e- uh, one weekend, you know, 60, 70 people shot. Uh, if you pull back the police from these communities, there'll be, uh, there'll be more harm done to these communities. Supporters of community policing say it is more important to invest in the police, in the organization, the training, and the technology officers use. About 4 in 10 officers say their department has done very well in training them to do their job. Supporters say this indicates there is still room for improvement to make community policing as effective as it can be. 
Proponents say that training and technology should be incorporated into strategic planning, policies, and evaluations. Making policing more transparent is key to increasing positive relationships with the community. Investing in training and technology ensures officers are equipped to address issues before they grow into larger problems. Training at all levels should be adjusted to support best practices in policing today. Supporters say that training needs to encourage creative thinking, a proactive approach, and techniques for dealing with implicit bias, maintaining order, and public safety. The Department of Justice suggests officers can be trained to identify and correct conditions that lead to crime, raise public awareness, and engage the community when solving neighborhood concerns. Maintaining positive relationships can start with training and follow officers out into the beat. Community policing says that problem-solving and community partnerships should be institutionalized in policies across the department. They should be identified with procedure standards and benchmarks to ensure officers at all levels are held accountable. These standards help ensure community policing is not just an idea, but a day-to-day way of policing. Supporters suggest that how departments are organized and how infrastructure is prioritized can lead to lasting changes in the agency and community. Addressing the climate or culture of a whole unit can bring systemic changes to the organization as a whole. This calls to decentralized decision-making. Instead, frontline officers are tasked with responsibility and autonomy for their role in the department. The Department of Justice says officers are held accountable for solutions and assume great responsibility for the well-being of the community. This style increases risk tolerance and problem-solving efforts and puts the onus on officer discretion. It is most often successful when the officer has direct goodwill relationships with the community and has the resources to solve public safety or criminal issues. For officers to be successful in community policing, some say it is necessary that departments enact long-term assignments, reduce specialization, and devote resources to effective partnerships. Supporters say that it is necessary that officers are assigned to specific neighborhoods or beats over many months to years. The DOJ reports that this ensures they have more contact with people in the community, establishing a strong relationship and mutual accountability. Community policing suggests that officers should be able to handle multiple responsibilities and take a team approach, rather than a parallel one. While some specialized team efforts may be needed to take on particularly complex issues, supporters of community policing say it is more effective when officers can hold many roles within a neighborhood. Money and people power should be used to sustain effective programs and efforts. Third, community policing means police officers use proactive and systematic methods to identify and solve problems quickly and effectively. Community policing is action-based. It encourages a proactive methodology of finding problems, developing responses, evaluating the response, and adjusting for the future. Rather than just responding to a crime after it happens, supporters say this methodology helps officers act before the crime occurs. Agencies and officers are enabled to develop solutions and address underlying issues that lead to public safety concerns. To be successful, officers and department leads are encouraged to think outside the box. The Department of Justice says that this proactive problem-solving should be used at all levels of operations and should guide all decision-making efforts. Departments that utilize community policing task officers with a SARA approach, scan, analyze, respond, and assess. This approach has officers scan the neighborhood, identifying problems, determining their nature and scope, and prioritizing based on community needs. A problem can be the start of a pattern in incidents, but it can also be a type of behavior, a place, a person, or an event that indicates a public safety concern. Then officers analyze researching what is known, and investigating to get a full understanding of all the parts at play. In this stage, officers find out as much as possible about the crime triangle. 
a concept that refers to the three parts of a problem, the victim, the offender, and the location. Police problem solving suggests that a concern can be resolved by disrupting one part of this triangle during the next stage, which means it's time to act. Officers respond to the problem with solutions that are intended to have long-lasting effects, like reducing the number of incidents or lessening the extent of the issue. Experts say this response should be the logical next step from the analysis stage and should be tailored to the specific problem. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. Finally, officers assess program success and make adjustments as needed. They look to see if the strategy was effective and if the problem was solved both in the short term and over time. If not, it's back to analysis for more information before new solutions can be tested. Supporters say that this is a circular rather than a linear problem-solving model. Proactive problem-solving with the SARA model separates root causes from the problem as a whole. The crime triangle focuses on disrupting factors within police reach, such as limiting opportunities and associating risk with unwanted behavior. Supporters say that engaging members of the community can help solve problems and disrupt a crime triangle, and it's also an example of community policing. Experts suggest that when trying to eliminate an issue, it's necessary for police to consider community members who can help. By engaging with residents who can exercise control over part of the issue, officers can increase the number of potential strategies they can try. For example, if a police department is trying to reduce the number of illegal drugs in a neighborhood and the offenders live at a known address, the police can enlist community members like the landlord, the health department, and parents of the offenders. These could help eliminate parts of the crime triangle or change the environment to eliminate the crime completely. To recap, proponents of community policing say that this method works because it increases public trust and reduces crime. Community policing supports partnerships within neighborhoods to develop solutions and increase trust in the police. It helps organizations run more smoothly and helps officers use proactive policing to identify and solve public safety concerns. As we discussed at the start of this episode, police departments have come under scrutiny for their methods and effectiveness over the past decade, and particularly over the past year. Critics say that community policing has not worked and it's time to defund the police. But supporters say that community policing has demonstrated a positive impact already, and that more support via more funds and training could greater increase that impact. Many of the reform initiatives proposed in 2020 increased police budgets rather than reallocating funds to other public safety budgets. These funds would be used for more training, new gear, and other enhancements. President Biden supported community policing during his 2020 campaign. In an interview with CBS Evening News, he had this to say. In an interview with CBS Evening News, he had this to say. I think what's happened here is one of those great inflection points in American history, for real, in terms of civil liberties, civil rights, and, and just treating people with dignity. You've seen the Black Lives Matter painted on that street just outside the White House. Some demonstrators added, equals defund the police. Do you support defunding the police? No, I don't support defunding the police. I support conditioning federal aid to police based on whether or not they meet certain basic standards of decency and honorableness and, in fact, are able to demonstrate they can protect the community and everybody in the community. But what would the police reforms being proposed entail? Many supporters of community policing and subsequent reforms seek to address the following objectives. One, to increase technology access and data transparency for police accountability. Two, to increase training, particularly around racial bias and de-escalation tactics. And three, to increase oversight and accountability with the public and another outside entity. Let's take these one by one. 
First, supporters of community policing say that it is necessary to increase technology access and data transparency so that police can be effective. Technology provides agencies with the data needed to see if programs are effective and how communities are being served. Keeping the data transparent with the public within the agency and between community partners ensures public trust and officer accountability. Community policing methods say that the police need two-way conversations with the public and with their officers. This includes online reports, discussion forums, and feedback on surveys and maps to create transparency and encourage dialogue. Technology and data are essential to creating benchmarks that encourage accountability and performance. They provide timely information on crime data and community characteristics. They support proactive policing because they help agencies gather more detailed information about crimes and interactions, which then leads to more specific analysis and problem-solving in the future. Investing in body-worn cameras is one example of this initiative at work. Kevin Vogel is the Santa Cruz police chief. He says, quote, Body cameras certainly increase accountability and the transparency of the police department. I think that's the number one benefit, unquote. Proponents of community policing say that body-worn cameras provide accountability and increase transparency, which can have larger effects within the community. It can help reduce crime, lessen police misconduct, and encourage trust in the police. Footage from body-worn cameras provides better evidence, records use of force incidents, and encourages good behavior from both officers and community members who encounter them. But body-worn cameras are no small expense, so it is necessary to choose the right equipment. Santa Cruz estimated that data storage alone costs about $100,000 a year. The department started requiring officers to wear cameras in 2017. Supporters suggest that body-worn cameras can help contribute to better transparency, increased civility, quicker resolution, corroborating evidence, and training opportunities. All of these benefits may lead to increased trust in the police, better community relations, and safer neighborhoods. And some studies suggest that these benefits are backed by research. A 2014 study found that officers with body-worn cameras were more productive in making arrests, had fewer complaints lodged against them when compared to officers without cameras, and had more citizen complaints resolved in their favor. Supporters say this evidence suggests that body-worn cameras increase accountability and eliminate some confusion by providing corroborating evidence. Another study found that after officers began wearing body-worn cameras, the number of citizen complaints against officers decreased, as well as the number of use-of-force incidents by the police. Two researchers from Arizona State University found that body-worn cameras led officers to be more careful and conscientious. The data also showed that officers who wore cameras were more likely to initiate contact with community residents than officers without body-worn cameras. And over time, the data findings appear steady. In a global 2016 study, researchers found that use of force incidents decreased when officers activated their cameras upon arrival at a scene. On the other hand, incidents appeared to increase when officers had a choice on whether or not to activate their cameras. And finally, a 2017 study found that officers with body-worn cameras had fewer use-of-force complaints than officers without cameras. They also appeared to issue more arrests and citations rather than officers without cameras. Supporters of community policing suggest that this data indicates how increasing technology access can improve policing accountability and transparency. Body-worn cameras can eliminate violations and small discrepancies in traffic stops, arrests, and other interactions with community members. But beyond body-worn cameras, some departments are investing in other technology to solve and deter crime. Technology can help police solve crimes more efficiently. By investing more money into technology access, supporters of community policing say officers are able to be more efficient and better informed about their communities. 
which then allows the police to spend more time on patrol and proactively building relationships in the neighborhoods they serve. Proponents also say that increasing technology access can make communication between officers more efficient and increases sharing between agencies who are coordinating to deal with public safety concerns. This helps support daily operations and reduces the time and cost in preparing for and responding to crimes and other incidents. Another piece of technology that some departments are investing in are smart sensors. Smart sensors are used to compile information that helps officers do their jobs quickly and effectively. These sensors are being used to log locations, listen for gunshots, stream video, flag license plates, and more. They offer departments a new and unprecedented awareness in the communities they serve. Deloitte says that these capabilities can make departments more efficient. They can also help close the investigations more quickly. Quote, most importantly, these technologies can help officers be in the right place at the right time. Unquote. Secondly, supporters of community policing say that departments need to increase training, particularly around bias and de-escalation tactics. Experts say that bias is real, and whether these biases are implicit or explicit, they can influence an officer's perception and behaviors. Sometimes, this can make an incident harmful or deadly. Community policing supporters say that officers should be required to attend training to help address these issues. Undergoing bias training, conflict mediation, and de-escalation courses can help officers better respond to community needs. They can also make departments more consistent and efficient when engaging with the community and enforcing the law. Implicit bias refers to the unconscious attitude or stereotype someone holds towards a person or a group. In policing, this can result in an automatic preference to let one violator go, but arrest another, without the officer even being aware of why they made this decision. Explicit bias, on the other hand, is when a person is aware of their prejudice towards another person or group. Bias training is being used in many police departments across the U.S. to address these concerns and encourage more just policing. Supporters of community policing say that these trainings can help root out deeply held biases that people unconsciously hold. Some studies found that it's easy to change attitudes for a short time, but it's difficult as a long-term solution. But other studies indicate that they may work after all. In a 2012 study at the University of Wisconsin, participants completed an implicit association task to recognize the unconscious biases they held. Then, they viewed a presentation that discussed their own individual level of bias, divulged how bias can lead to discrimination, and learned strategies to reduce these biases. Two months later, the same participants had lower implicit bias scores. They reported having more concern about bias and more awareness about their own behavior. A 2017 study found that completing bias intervention training had a negligible effect on lowering bias and had relatively the same effect as doing nothing. However, the study did find that completing this training encouraged more participants to speak out publicly against bias, even two years later, which suggests that while the score did not change, their long-term behavior did. Researchers suggest that this is because participants were motivated to recognize and challenge bias. Patricia Devine is the head researcher on both these studies. She says, quote, I don't know if we could ever get rid of those underlying associations, but we can make them less powerful in our thinking. We can learn to recognize the ways in which biases lead us to conclusions that we understand are not appropriate or unwarranted, and then we can do something else that reflects your intentions and your values much more, unquote. Proponents of community policing say that these studies show promising evidence that requiring implicit bias training in police departments could improve policing overall. And being aware of implicit bias could lead to other changes, which also reduces biased behavior. Some researchers worked with the Oakland Police Department to reduce the amount of racially motivated traffic stops. They did so by adding a yes or no question to the top of officers' required paperwork. Is this intelligence-led? 
The BBC reports that in the following year, researchers found that the traffic stops of black people dropped 43%, and overall the crime rate appeared to continue dropping. Other proponents of community policing say that initiatives like Coffee with a Cop can work to further cement anti-bias training. Coffee with a Cop initiatives allow police officers to build relationships with people in their neighborhoods outside of the pretext of their job duties. Some researchers say that long-term social contact is the best way to change attitudes about those groups. Initiatives like Coffee with a Cop have potential benefits for both officers and community members. In the rush to implement anti-bias training, some supporters say that past trainings were ultimately ineffective in achieving their goals. Now they say that departments should invest in vetted programs that address individual bias scores and improve officer-community relations, ultimately saving departments money in the long run. Other experts suggest that additional training is needed in de-escalation and non-deadly tactics to help police do their job more effectively while keeping the public safe. De-escalation refers to the process of reducing the intensity of a situation. In the field, this may look like an officer issuing a traffic citation or calming a person down who has witnessed a crime. Supporters of community policing suggest that mastering de-escalation training can reduce stress for everyone involved in the encounter, including the officer. By reducing the intensity, officers are able to communicate more effectively with the person in front of them, and thus keep the public at large more safe. Proponents also say that de-escalation can improve community relations and increase job performance. Studies have shown that citizens base their perception of the police off their last encounter with an officer. For those who have had a positive or respectful interaction, this can lead to ripples of goodwill throughout a community. For those who have had negative interactions, it can lead to mistrust or other societal problems. Using de-escalation allows officers to communicate with neighborhood residents and reduce the need for force in the field. It is reported that supervisors have seen officers receive less complaints and higher quality job performance when using de-escalation tactics regularly. Officers use de-escalation regularly throughout their job duties. Proponents of community policing say that by requiring this training, it keeps the importance of this skill in the forefront. The combination of de-escalation with anti-bias training may reduce police violence and use of force incidents overall. Third and finally, community policing proponents say that it's necessary to increase oversight and accountability with the public and an outside entity. Police departments are funded by the public, and thus, community policing says they need to be accountable to the public. Supporters suggest that it is time for changes to be made to how departments investigate officers and hold them accountable for their behavior. PolicyLink is a national research institute. In 2001, it partnered with the Advancement Project to put forth a report about community policing. In this report, researchers say, quote, Enforceable accountability measures with a proven track record will be established to ensure impartiality in instances where police brutality, racial profiling, and or improper use of force are in question. This will include launching effective independent review boards broadly representative of the community, not just municipal interests. Unquote. Policy links suggest that actions, investigations, and other recommendations from these review boards should be transparent and enforceable. Supporters of community policing call for data that is properly collected and publicly available so that communities are aware of trends and particular incidents. Proponents say that police play an important role in keeping communities safe, and that while some reforms have had a limited impact or effect, it is still possible to develop departments that respect, serve, and protect all of the people. One way that departments can do this is by finding resources to pay for body-worn cameras and other oversight tools. Policy link researchers say, quote, these and other tools will be used by departments to help investigate and hold, officers, and hold officers accountable, 
and help to eliminate racial profiling and other potential police misconduct due to a person's class, religion, gender, physical or mental ability, or sexual orientation, unquote. Supporters of community policing say that by investing in oversight or other resources, it is possible to make the police a more equitable source for public safety in communities. Others say that investing in civilian oversight in the form of advisory boards could make a lasting impact on community policing and the effectiveness of police methods. NACOL is the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. They say that oversight will not just benefit the individual, it will also benefit the community, the law enforcement agencies, and elected officials. Benefits can change depending on how much cooperation there is between these groups. But Nakul says that potential benefits include increased accountability for officers' actions, improved internal investigations into alleged misconduct, and assurance to the community that agencies are being run smoothly. Other potential benefits suggest that oversight agencies can reduce public concern about high-profile incidents, increase understanding about police policies and procedures, and improve policies within the department by identifying areas of concern and, uh, and offering solutions. Other potential benefits suggest that oversight agencies can reduce public concern about high-profile incidents, increase understanding about police policies and procedures, and improve policies within the department by identifying areas of concern and offering solutions. Nicole says, quote, Mediation has multiple benefits for both citizens and police officers. If the oversight agency provides mediated solutions, it can help complainants feel satisfied through being able to express their concerns to the specific police officer in a neutral environment. Mediation can also help police officers better understand how their words, behaviors, and attitudes can unknowingly affect public perceptions, unquote. Supporters of community policing point to all of these potential benefits as ways that oversight can help not hurt the future of policing. Pamela Seifert is a captain in the Sacramento Police Department. She wrote in a Police Chief Magazine article that professional civilian oversight can transform culture immensely and in a positive way. She writes, quote, if law enforcement leaders focus on helping to create the change as opposed to fighting it at every turn, they can not only create oversight that is accepted by their agencies, but also help guide the organizational change. Officer morale will increase because public opinion will change. Most importantly, the police will have improved policies, procedures, and organizational cultures that are accepted by the communities they serve, unquote. Pamela says that civilian oversight has been historically resisted by law enforcement because officers fear their methods and decision-making will not be understood. James Pasco is the National Executive Director for the Fraternal Order of Police. He says, quote, The fact of the matter is, an officer has to make a split-second decision involving life or death, and the civilian review boards tend to, by definition, be made up of civilians who have no particular experience or insight into what went through the officer's mind, what the circumstances were, and how desperate things can become in that nanosecond, unquote. Pamela, on the other hand, rebuts this argument. She says that many in law enforcement face a crossroads due to the highly publicized nature of events on social media and in mainstream coverage. Quote, Highly publicized events and a media culture that creates its own narrative have caused some to lose trust in the ability of agencies to police their own, unquote. For instance, the Department of Justice found that shielding accountability measures from public view is inadequate and ineffective. In fact, it can even, quote, damage the department's legitimacy in the community, unquote. The speed and access of information among the public encourages some supporters to say police departments need to share information just as freely. Pamela writes, quote, one bad shooting or controversial use of force can cause a ripple effect across the United States, and law enforcement agencies everywhere are paying the price. Even if an agency has yet to experience its own controversial critical event, it is not immune to the growing demand for citizen review boards, unquote. 
Citizens across the U.S. are calling for greater police accountability. Supporters of community policing say this accountability may be best achieved with independent reviews of misconduct. Pamela writes that, quote, The fact that more and more major cities are voting for some form of civilian review of police is a great indicator that this is the path to improve police and community relations as well as build legitimacy, unquote. By increasing transparency between the police and the public through oversight boards, Pamela and other oversight board supporters say it will increase public trust in the police. And that trust is highly crucial for officers to be able to do their job safely. To do so, Pamela suggests that the police become involved in ensuring oversight boards are trained in police policy and knowledgeable about procedures and the law. Continued ride-alongs in education would ensure that members of these boards have a more full understanding of what an officer's job entails. And it also builds trust among officers that civilians are prepared to weigh in on cases. Proponents of community policing say that citizen review boards can be successful if properly implemented. And once they're operating, these boards can build community trust with law enforcement, which can lead to safer neighborhoods overall. In conclusion, supporters of community policing suggest that policing can be improved by investing more efforts into the organizations, not divesting it. They suggest that more technology and data be made available to departments and to the public. They want to see increased training, particularly around bias and de-escalation tactics. And they also want to see increased oversight from the public and an outside entity. But where will this lead as we move into a new decade and a potential new era of policing? As a recap, supporters of defunding the police say that by divesting police funds into other community initiatives, the government will better respond to community needs. The ACLU suggests that this will improve safety and health outcomes. Other proponents say it will reduce incidents of police brutality. Still others say that it will help end a cycle of mass incarceration and better invest in communities across the board. On the opposite end of opinion, supporters of police reform and investment in community policing say that by increasing funds, departments are able to increase training efforts, increase data transparency, and increase oversight by outside entities. Experts suggest that this will lead to safer communities and more trust in police. Other proponents say it will reduce incidents of racial profiling and police violence. Still others suggest it will help prevent public safety concerns before they occur. Despite differing opinions on where the future of policing should lead, there appears to be consensus that something needs to change. A Gallup poll shows that 94% of Americans agree that policing needs either minor or major changes in the future. 97% believe that officers need to have a good relationship with the community they serve. 96% of Americans agree that changes need to be made so officers are held accountable for any misconduct. And 98% of people agree that officers with multiple abuse incidents should no longer be allowed to serve. About four in five Americans see the importance of community organizations playing a larger role in public safety. These results suggest that most Americans agree on common principles in policing and addressing current issues with law enforcement, even when there are differing opinions on how exactly to deal with those issues. What do you think? Should local governments defund or even disband their police departments? Or should they focus on adding more training for officers? Would police be more effective in preventing crime by spending more money? Or would it be more effective to direct funds to other organizations better suited for specific community issues? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything I talked about in this week's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We the Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. 
A quick heads up, your stories and reaction may be used in an upcoming episode or another part of the We the Voters site. But let's stay in touch between episodes. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We the Voters Project, on Twitter at Hi We the Voters, and on Instagram at We the Voters. We the Voters is a project funded by people like you. If you like what you heard today, consider supporting this work with a one-time or monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash we the voters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Shoot me an email or a text if you'd like to find out more. You can also support We the Voters without spending a cent. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. These are ways that take very little time but have a big impact in helping this project grow. Everything I've talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here in your feed next Wednesday dissecting another myth in U.S. culture. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters. We the Voters.